I'm Steve Pruitt, and I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I'm excited and nervous all at the same time. I'm glad that those of you online can join us as well. It'll help you a bit if you have a Bible with you to follow along with us. We're going to be in the book of Joel today. If you haven't brought a Bible, you can take one from any one of the communion tables, or if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion app, you can go onto that and navigate, and Aaron always gives all those specific uh, instructions and stuff. Click on more, and then you'll find element, and you'll be able to track with us with the verses and stuff. Um, There's also notes at the tables. They're a little bit uh, truncated during this service, a little bit shorter, but might be helpful for you as well. How about if we stand out of respect for God's word as I read some of our key verses today? Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather at this place. It's just refreshing to be with your people again and have a chance to worship together. I pray that as we get into your word that you will come, be our teacher, uh, work your word into our hearts and change us because we've experienced it today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There have been a few times in my life that it's things just looked impossibly bleak to me. Times when my ministry seemed so overwhelming that I just felt like quitting, wondered if I should quit and get a real job. Um, times when I was sick with a tropical disease that actually would go on for years and I wondered if I would ever be healthy again. There were times of loss, like one time when somebody broke into our jungle house when we weren't there and started hauling off everything in the house, and we kind of interrupted the process, but so much of our stuff disappeared. That sense of discouragement that comes from loss like that was hard. And then there was a time that we came home to the States from the mission field. We served in the Philippines for several years, and we didn't know if we would go back to the field, so we packed all of our stuff in 55-gallon drums and stored it in a little storage place in Manila. And when we decided that the Lord would have us stay here, we had all of that stuff shipped over. We actually came back to the States with just what we could carry on the plane. And come to find out, the shipping company that shipped our stuff disappeared off the face of the earth, and so did all of our stuff. And so we just had this sinking feeling of maybe having to start all over again. There's also been times, and you've seen some of these, where the political and moral climate climate around us was so discouraging, so bad, that it seemed like things were 
just never going to turn around. But I think this year might be the first time in my life where there's been this downward spiraling political and moral climate and a plague on our land. It's a time when it's just so easy to sink and to lose hope and a time where, I mean, I can even think that maybe it's the end of normal life as we know it. It always tweaks me when I hear on the news, this is the new normal, and I'm going, no, it can't be the new normal. I want the normal normal. (laughs) But by the way, I say this, but I am so thankful that it looks like we are finally on the exit side of this pandemic that we've been going through, but I'm still not so sure how we're doing in the political and moral plague that's on our land right now. It is somewhat comforting, though, to know that I'm not the first one to live through seemingly impossible times like this, and neither are you. Sometimes you might think that, but once upon a time in a land far away, there was in the kingdom of Judah a prophet named Joel, who was actually going through much, much tougher times than you and I are going through. And I'm pretty sure that if we were to sit down with Joel for coffee, we would have a lot in common, and we'd probably feel even a little bit better about our situation. Joel and his countrymen, at the time of his writing, were going through a devastating plague a moral decline, and a political divide that had actually split their kingdom into two. The two parties totally split, and they were even at each other at war from time to time. We don't know a whole lot about Joel. Some of the prophets we have a lot of info on, but not this guy. His name means simply Jehovah is God, which tells us that he was most likely a Hebrew. His dad's name was Pethuel, which is also Hebrew, so there's another clue, but that's all we know about his dad or his, his lineage and anything. But there are some clues that we can gather about Joel through what he writes. <clears throat> we know that he was well-versed in the scriptures because he quotes from at least eight other Old Testament books. He knew a lot about Jerusalem and the temple, so it's possible that he either lived in or near Jerusalem. Some have even suggested that he might have been a temple prophet. One of the guys you would go to in order to find out what God wanted you to do, because you knew that God spoke to him and gave him messages. The guy who would uh, call you out if you were blowing it. The guy who would warn you about things to come before they would happen, or also comfort you that things were going to get better. Whatever the message was that God had, the temple prophet would be the guy to go to. And we don't know for sure if Joel was a temple prophet, but his writings do fit that pattern. Today I want to take a look at the book that he wrote. The the book of Joel is the second book in the Minor Prophets. And by the way, just a reminder, they're called Minor Prophets not because what they wrote wasn't as inspired as what the other prophets wrote. These are the words of our God to his people, just as much as any other. It's also not because their work deals with minor issues. 
you know, here's the little addendum. Also think about this, not that at all. In fact, these are so important that God put them in his book so that they would be with us for generation after generation. The only reason they're called the minor prophets is because what they wrote was smaller than what the others wrote. It's as, really as simple as that. This book is a mere three chapters long, so you could even call it the booklet of Joel if you wanted. But it is a collection of prophetic poems that are packed with some key truths and prophecies that God wanted the human race to remember. And they are centered around a theme of the day of the Lord. You've probably heard that term before. Now, some Bible books give us clear markers as to when they were written. Uh, like it will say right in the text, it was in the fourth, so, fourth year of so-and-so's reign. And then it goes, or in the year that King Uzziah had died, something like that. And then you'll have a historical marker. Stuff like that is very helpful. But there's none of that here. But uh, there's fact, actually no king mentioned at all. But the fact that there's no king mentioned actually becomes one of our clues as to when it might have been written. It could be that it was right after Judah's only reigning queen died. Her name was Athaliah, and she died around 835 BC. Uh, She was the daughter of King Ahab, and uh, she was a real piece of work. She was so wicked, in fact, she killed all of the royal family that could maybe succeed her, everybody she could get to, uh, and she was eventually killed by her subjects, and then one of her sons, a little seven-year-old Joash, had been hidden, so she couldn't kill him, and he succeeded her as king. But he was only seven years old. So think about the last seven-year-old that you had contact with. There's no way he was ready to reign. And so while he was growing up, the priest Jehoiada ruled in his place for several years. And they probably were prepping Joash during that time. So... If Joel wrote during this transition, it would make sense that he didn't mention any official king because there wasn't really a regular king going on during that time. So all of this points to a date of writing somewhere around 835 BC, maybe a little bit after that, which would actually make Joel one of the contemporaries of the prophet Elisha right around that time and one of the first of the prophets in this way. This was a time when God's people were not doing well. A lot of the prophetic books were uh, written to call out Israel and Judah for specific sins, but Joel's book doesn't do that. And it'd be easy to think, oh, maybe they were doing okay. No, they were not. Something is very wrong in the kingdom of Judah. God's people, as I mentioned earlier, couldn't seem to get along politically, so now they're split into two kingdoms instead of one. They are now the kingdom of Israel in the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Judah in the southern kingdom. And Joel is writing to Judah in the southern kingdom. Another thing that's wrong is that the people seem to be worshiping God with their 
outward acts and not really from the heart. It was a demonstration without the heart source. So also, there's a plague in the land, a devastating plague, a plague of locusts that were just destroying all of their crops, all of their foods. This plague is sent by God as a wake-up call that's meant to change their hearts. But as he writes, Joel also gives some hope and says that someday God is going to replace their crops, wipe out evil, and renew all things. He will come, God will come and will dwell with his people and they're going to be safe forever. Every kind of invasion, every kind of devastation or drought or whatever will happen no more. As part of this uh, renewal that is promised, Joel prophesies also that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And this is kind of a new thing. And when he does, he will cause ordinary people to have visions and uh, divinely inspired dreams. The coming of the Spirit in the book of Joel is seen as kind of the beginning of a future day of the Lord. So as we take a look at the book, let's just um, notice for a minute the flow of it so that you kind of, this is kind of my first map. Um, First, it starts off, with God sending this plague of locusts. Then that plague of locusts is compared to an invading army. God asked the people to return to him by rending their hearts and not their garments. Not an outward show, but something from the heart he wants. Rending is tearing. And uh, he promises then, if they do that, healing and restoration. And then he promises this future day of the Lord with both devastation and blessing coming again. It's also helpful to have a basic outline of the book. Uh, to, I find it helpful to give me a map along the way to kind of know where I am and keep things in context. And so uh, it kind of keeps me from getting lost in the details. And in Joel, there are just two main sections. They're fairly easy to remember. The first section is talking about the present day of the Lord, which is the locust plague and the restoration. And the second talks about a future day of the Lord with some cosmic judgments and then some eventual restoration there. The first section, we'll just walk through it a bit. The first section is from the beginning of chapter one through most of chapter two. And it speaks about the present day of the Lord. And it starts off with this literal description of the plague. It is a devastating invasion of locusts, which are like uh, destructive grasshoppers. That's about the closest thing you can... The desert locust is still the world's most devastating pest. A swarm can pack between 40 and 50 million locusts into less than half a square mile... And each locust can eat its body weight every day. So a swarm eats everything that's not concrete, (laughs) you know, everything in in its past. And it's not uncommon for the count 
of a, a locust plague to be in the billions of insects. So this plague gets a graphic description in Joel's book. Then in chapter 2, there's a figurative description of the plague. Now some commentators, some scholars think that this is another invasion coming from a human army, but I think Joel uses the idea, the image of a human army to describe what the locusts are doing, and that's probably to alert Israel that this locust plague is not an accident, but is a judgment from God, because God would use invading armies. He's comparing the locust to an invading army, just another kind of wake-up call for them. Invasions were one of the main tools that God would use to get his people on track. He'd send other nations in to attack them and all that, and so here it's insects. And you can see This kind of thing, clearly, this invasion being from God, starting in verse 12, where it's this uh, plea to return. Yet even now, and this is what I read at the beginning, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. A lot of times the... the, Uh, Near Eastern people, when they were exasperated or devastated, they would tear their garments and everybody could see that they were an emotional wreck and that, that something bad had happened. And he said, I don't need that outward display. I want you to tear your heart. I want this to change the structure of your thinking and your motivations and everything. An interchange, not an outward demonstration. That's what I'm looking for, says the Lord. Then there comes a promise after that of restoration after the plague. In uh, later chapter 2, the army of locusts is going to disappear. The trees are going to bear fruit again. There will be new grain and wine and Judah's storage vats will be overflowing again. It is great news that this has come to pass and not to stay. So that's good. The Lord says in uh, chapter 2, verse 25, And I'm going to read this in the New Living because it really captures the meaning with some good life. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, to the hopping locusts, to the stripping locusts, and the cutting locusts. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. Once again, you will have all the food you want, and you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. Then you will know that I am among my people, Israel, that I am the Lord, your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be disgraced. Well, here it's obvious that the plague was God's idea and sent by him. He says, it was I who sent this great destroying army against you. This was my idea, and you can see why he did it, because he wants them to be fully restored to him. It's also so obvious, you know, you often think that when some bad thing happens that God is kind of out to get you, but it's so obvious here, it's not to destroy them, it's to bring them back. Back so that he could fulfill his conditional promises to them. 
and back so that they wouldn't get sucked into worshiping other gods like the world around them was doing. This is why he brought the plague. But as we read on, we see that he's also sent the locust plague as a sign and a warning of things to come later. And this is where the book goes into its second section where he talks about a a future day of the Lord. It starts in chapter 2, verse 28. And this is talking about a coming day of the Lord. We don't know, as they were reading the book, they probably didn't know how long it would be. But um, it's a coming day, but it's not talking about a single day, but a period of time in the last days when God is going to um, do these things. Kind of like when people say, I get my day in court, they probably aren't just there for a day, they're there for, it means an opportunity and a time period, right? At first, it talks about a sign that the day is beginning, and that sign is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, this is kind of a new concept in Scripture. Look at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. This is pretty amazing. There's coming a day, God says, when the Holy Spirit is going to be, quote, poured out on all kinds of people in Israel, on your sons and your daughters, on your old guys and your young guys, even on those you consider to be the lowliest people, your male and female servants, the Spirit is going to be poured out. And when he is, things are going to happen. They will prophesy. That is, God is going to speak through these people. Some you wouldn't expect to be vessels of God's communication. They'll have dreams and visions that are communications from God. And this is the beginning of a future day of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that in the book of Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes this very passage, Joel's prophecy, and says that these things were happening as the fulfillment of that prophecy. In other words, we are in these days. This is what God was talking about way back then. This phenomenon, remember the tongues that looked like flames over their heads? It was a sign that the Holy Spirit had come to dwell in his people. That You also find some of these people going on to have dreams and visions throughout the, the book of Acts. It was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But Joel also writes that in the last days there's going to be, that these things will be signs that judgment is coming and there will be other signs that judgment is coming. And this is one of the places where we see in the Bible that the day of the Lord is not a single day but a period of time, and it's not one event, but a whole sequence of events. The vision of the judgment day starts in Joel 2.30. It says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. 
the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now this is predicting another devastating time coming during the very last days. And there are going to be these warning signs that the end is near. The sun goes dark and the moon goes red before the day of the Lord comes. There's a description of blood and fire and columns of smoke, and I don't know what that is going to look like, but it looks devastating. So in the last days, God is going to send these kinds of signs, and those are things that God's people will know that the end is near. There's a judgment coming. But it's comforting to know that he's also, during this time, going to protect his people. Joel goes on. You can see this uh, in uh, verse 32, chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is saved out of this devastation. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, and as the Lord has said, and among the survivors there shall be those whom the Lord calls. Even though the times are going to be scary and devastating, God is not going to abandon his people. What a comfort that must have been to the readers of this prophecy, the readers in Judah. Um, And it's a comfort to us as well that God does never, ever leave us nor forsake us no matter how devastating our circumstances happen to be. In chapter 3, Joel elaborates on God's future judgment and it is devastating. God's enemies are going to be brought to judgment for all they've done, especially what they've done to God's people. They'll be judged for taking Israel's land. They'll be judged for selling them as slaves and for human trafficking of boys and girls. That's actually mentioned in the passage. He goes on to say that then a battle ensues and the enemies eventually get defeated. And again, during that time, the sun and the moon, it says, are darkened. The stars will no longer shine. And this time, the earth shakes as well. All the lights eventually go out on the wicked who have loved darkness rather than light. It's a fitting judgment. But then at the end of that dreadful time period, we see God's promises to his people. It starts in chapter 3. Uh, verse 16, and I just got to read it. It's beautiful. It's in the New Living Translation. Um, The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a strong fortress for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, live in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy forever, and foreign armies will never conquer her again. In that day, listen to this, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. Water will fill the stream beds of Judah, and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple watering the arid valley of acacias. But, and isn't that, I mean, it's just so beautiful. But, verse 19, Egypt will become a wasteland and Edom will become a wilderness because they attacked the people of Judah and killed 
innocent people in their land. But, another but, Judah will be filled with people forever and Jerusalem will endure through all generations. I will pardon my people's crimes, which I have not yet pardoned. And I, the Lord, will make my home in Jerusalem with my people. This is the God of the universe, the God of all creation, saying Jerusalem will be his home and they will be his people. He considers us his people. The earth shakes, lights go out, and it should be a frightening vision to those who reject God. But during all of that chaos, the Lord is a refuge for his people and a strong fortress for them. He is going to pardon their crimes and he's going to make his home there. When all of that horrible dust settles, God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. He's going to have his family together safe. This is what he wants and this is what he's working on. And that is some amazing good news. When you see the heart of God and what his ultimate desire and plan is for us, it's incredible. That had to be good news for those whose crops had just disappeared and who had bugs in their hair and everywhere, um, crawling up the trees so thick that you couldn't even see the trees. And when they were done, there was just sticks there and all of that. And then all of a sudden to see, oh, this is where God is heading. Wow. And he wants to be with me. There's a lot of good news here. And you know, if you're like me, you struggle from time to time probably with a loss of hope that things are ever going to get better. If it seems to you like our nation and our world are in this never-ending downward spiral towards judgment and destruction, well, actually, you're very perceptive. Uh, Because it it is. But if that bothers you, then you might want to take a good look at God's message to Joel. Take a look at the hope that Joel gives about the destruction of evil and the restoration back to the way things are meant to be, back to the way that God wants them to be. That is the real purpose of biblical prophecy, really. Yes, it's to warn the wicked, but it's also meant to encourage and motivate believers. It sends us a message from our Father that says, I know it's rough. I've seen all this stuff. But I want you to know, one, that, yeah, it's going to get rougher. But I want you to know how it's going to turn out so that you'll know that I got this. And I've got you. And I am never, ever going to let you go and it is eventually going to get better and better until it is perfect again. Better than you can even imagine in your mind. The Apostle Paul said in Second and 1 Corinthians 2 9 I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it even entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine how good it's eventually going to be. Another thing to think about here is that what God wanted to see in the people of Judah, he wants to see in us. He's interested in our inner transformation, our attitude before our actions. With him, it's about 
the heart first, and then actions follow heart. When plagues happen, whether it's a plague of organisms we can see, like locusts, or a plague that comes from a virus that we can't see, or a plague of philosophies and immoralities that drag us down into kind of a depression, there are some things that should always happen, some places that our God wants our hearts and minds to go. One, I think he wants us to acknowledge that we live in a fallen world, a fall that was caused originally by sin. Two, I think he wants us to know that tragic events that happen can either be the natural effects of that original fall or they can be a judgment upon a current culture or nation that is abandoning God or a people who are turning more to outward display of their devotion to God than they are paying attention to their heart devotion to God. An invasion of any kind could be sent as a warning to get our hearts right first. And any plague or catastrophe that happens should prompt us to ask God to search us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He wants us to have that response, no matter what the reason is for the thing happening. He's always wanting to teach our hearts to come back to him. Another lesson that comes from Joel is don't try to impress God with your demonstrations of works or even demonstration of worship. He does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on what? The heart. He wants our hearts because he wants to have this genuine loving relationship with us. He really wants that, the real thing. And as Aaron showed us in the book of Hosea, even though we are so many times unfaithful, God remains faithful and he's willing to do whatever it takes to bring us back to himself for our good and our blessing. The biggest proof of that, and I'm going to call the band back up here and they're going to lead us back into worship The biggest proof of God's desire to do that is seen in what he's done for us to save us for all eternity. He gave us his son, Jesus, to take the condemnation that we deserve. And he did that so that we could be forgiven and we could enter into that heartfelt relationship with him. The band is going to lead us back into worship and as they do, As you know, each week we celebrate communion together. Uh, There are supplies at each of the tables that you can come during the worship time. There'll probably be one song, two songs, three songs. So you have a little bit of time to just come as you want. But as we do this, we want to remember that God wanted us so much that he sent his son whose name is Jesus and Jesus paid the price of our return to God. He paid the penalty for our sins and redeemed us back to God. The Apostle Paul says that that price was almost beyond imagination. It's not by silver or gold that he has redeemed us but through the precious 
blood of the lamb without spot or blemish. And so as the team leads us in worship and we take communion together, let's be sure to remember the cost that our creator paid to bring our hearts back to himself. And let's give thanks for that, that he was willing to go to that extreme to have this eternal relationship with us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. It is just so amazing to see that the things that these people went through are things that we're going through as well. We're grateful that you give us warnings, that you give us these heads up, and uh, we pray that as we get them, as we see these things going on, or as things reverse on us, that the first place we'll look is not where to blame other people for the tragic events, but that we'll look in our hearts and we'll see what you want to do to transform us, to bring us closer to yourself. And I pray that all of us will just start walking with that habit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.